This is Stephen Strang, and welcome to my God, Trump, and the 2020 Election podcast. It's the podcast that goes along with my book that tells why Donald Trump must win and what's at stake for Christians if he loses. And my guest today is someone who knows Donald Trump very well. In fact, he wrote the authorized account of Trump's term. It's called Inside Trump's White House. I read it, all 400 pages or so, (laughs) and I enjoyed every paragraph. And part of the reason is because I'm such an admirer of Doug Weed. Of course, I've read many of his books. I've known him literally since 1968. Neither one of us were very old back then. And we go way, way back. I consider him one of my best friends. He's had more influence on my life than very many other people. And I'm just so honored for him to do a podcast with me. His resume is as long as your arm. And I won't tell you everything except that he was an advisor to both Presidents George H.W. Bush and also President George W. Bush. And he has had an enormous odyssey. In fact, in my new book, God, Trump, in the 2020 election, I have a whole chapter on, I called it Washington and Evangelicals before Trump, because, you know, now the media makes it sound like with Paula White and all that kind of stuff, you know, evangelicals have kind of emerged as influencing the president. But actually, Doug Weed, my guest today, was one of the very, very first evangelicals who had any kind of influence on uh, what was going on at the White House. I mean, did you ever hear about evangelicals back with Truman or Eisenhower? No. You know, you can come right down through Nixon and so forth. I mean, there were a few, of course. Times were very different, but maybe we should start, Doug, by you telling the story on how you got to know the Bushes. In fact, I tell this story in my book, but it was very interesting. And one of the reasons is because the Bushes were good Episcopalians, but they barely knew what the word evangelical meant. And suddenly, Pat Robertson was running for president against them, and the evangelicals were backing Pat Robertson, and here was Doug Weed saying, you remember that, that movie, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming? Well, I can imagine you <laughs> there in Washington saying, the evangelicals are coming, the evangelicals are coming. And the Bushes said, help us. And, you know, I know I'm oversimplifying it, and I guess I'm being a little bit facetious, but I want you to tell us how you made that connection, and then maybe why you wrote this book on Donald Trump. Well, you know, first, Steve, I want to say... I read your book, God, Trump, and COVID-19, and this is a book that every one of your listeners should get and have. It's an easy read, and it lays it all out very, very clearly. But my involvement in public life was just very supernatural. I had uh, dreams, and I acted on them, and they happened. I had read the Bible through several times, and what I saw missing in my own life was helping the poor. I saw that as a very dominant theme all through Scripture, and I thought, wow, there it is, and I'm not doing anything about it. So I co-founded Save the Refugees and then Mercy Corps. Then we had dinners, invited into the White House and the East Room to host charity events, and I met some of the First Ladies and first the Carters and then the Reagans and then the Bushes. And as you just said to your audience, the Bushes (laughs) were Episcopalian patricians and they didn't know much about evangelicals. So here was one of the greatest spiritual awakenings in their lifetime and they didn't understand it and they wanted to. 
and they wanted to reach out politically, so that was the time. And you were able to rally evangelicals for George H.W. Bush, and then you served in the White House. I know that because I was able to go several times, and you served for a couple of years and opened a lot of doors for a lot of people. And now you are primarily an author. You've had many successful books and kind of became known for writing books about some of the presidents. Yeah, it, it was very interesting. You know, it's not certainly not because I'm smart and it's not because I have any power. It's because I'm old. <laughs> and I'm so old that I've now met Ford and Carter and was able to interview them multiple times. We had Gerald Ford in our home in Arizona and, and before that in Missouri. And so I actually got to know some of them. Had George W. in my home for private meetings. And I've been in the president's homes, Ronald Reagan's home out in California before he became a president. And so, and it's just continued with Trump. And so with the Trumps, I told Ivanka Trump someday when you're gone and your grandkids are gone, they're still going to be writing books <laughs> about the Trump family. And whether you're viewed favorably or unfavorably depends on primary sources of what you say and what the president says and the first lady says. And someone needs to write that book, and I'd like to write that book. So that's how that happened. And it's very interesting, as I said, but I want to disagree with something. I know you're being modest, but you said you're not smart. You're one of the smartest people I have ever met. And, you know, I know your background and your family, and to think that you've done all these things is is truly amazing. And you're really a witness for the Lord in, in many ways. So now here we have a big election coming up. Of course, we thought 2016 was a big election. Nobody thought that Donald Trump would win, except a few prophets. I document this in some of my books, too. Here he is, and he's become a big champion of religious liberty and a lot of the issues that the Republicans, at least, give lip service to or have over the past few decades, you know, things like pro-life and traditional family and support for Israel. But Donald Trump has just really delivered in a way that the other presidents didn't. And I think it's kind of taken everybody off guard. And now now there's all this unrest in the country. There was this COVID pandemic, which nobody expected. In fact, I wrote the book in 2019, God Trump in the 2020 election. And of course, none of us foresaw that that would happen. I did have a chapter on why Trump might lose. And I cited several things that could make the election go against him. And one of them was if the economy plummeted. And of course, with the pandemic, it did. And I wrote the sequel, God, Trump, and COVID-19, because so much had changed since I finished the book. I guess that's what happens when you write about current events. You know, things change. I mean, I wasn't even really able to write about the impeachment because it hadn't happened yet when the book was finished. In fact, the book came out on January 12th, and, you know, the impeachment was toward the end of January. So I'd like to know what you think about this election. How do you think it's going to go, and why does it seem that all the polls are saying that Donald Trump is in trouble? Yeah, (laughs) you aren't going to like my answer. My answer is I don't know. (laughs) And I was one of the first to 
predict that Donald Trump would win the nomination. I had supported Rand Paul, worked for Rand Paul, but when Rand Paul dropped out, I immediately jumped to Trump, and I could see the parallels with Andrew Jackson. The big difference with Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson took on the National Bank, and Donald Trump, as you know, has taken on the monopolies and the banks and central banking, and he's... uh, he's their enemy. He's released the angels of small business. That was the secret to all of his great economy was uh, getting small businessmen back on their feet again. And so there's a lot of forces arrayed against him. All of the television networks are owned by those monopolies. Viacom, for example, owns CBS and owns big publishing companies like Simon & Schuster. Disney, which gets 40% of its money from China, owns ABC. And so you're going to see him opposed by all of the big monopolies. They like regulations and they want to keep the small business from competing with them. So they promote any special interest, you can name it. I don't care what the cause is. They'll donate money, they'll get on their board of directors, and they'll promote new regulations for one issue or another in the purpose being to cripple the mom and pop stores that can't afford to meet all those regulatory criteria. So he's got a lot of enemies arrayed against him. He's got the whole establishment arrayed against him, Republican and Democrat. So if he wins, it will be a miracle of God and the enthusiasm of his base. Well, you know, at one time, he was a darling of the media. You know, he was actually a TV star himself. How many magazine covers was he on? You know, I'm talking about back in his kind of playboy days in New York. And I think something has changed. In the early 2000s, he became more serious about life. He reached out to various ministries. I've documented this in my books. Tell me your view of that, and maybe where I'm leading to is why is he so absolutely hated by people who used to love him? You know, the only thing I can explain about his spirituality is that God touches each of us in different ways, and it's beyond logic. I mean, there are great scientists, as you know, who are born-again Christians. It just defies logic. It's You can believe in carbon dating and still believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. There's a book out, you may have seen it, called The God Part of the Brain that describes a part of the brain that we can actually access and that helps explain the spiritual experiences that we have with God. But, but Donald Trump was surfing the television channels 20 years ago. That's when he found Paula White, but he had been watching many other ministers Jimmy Swaggart, of all people, and others, and he had lost his father. That was the only time that I've known that he wept the night his father died. He'd seen him for the last time in the hospital. He went back to Trump Tower, and the nurse called him and said, your father's gone, and he was all alone. And he went into his living room there at the Trump Tower, the main room that looks out over the city, And he wept, and he felt so lonely. He came to this spiritual experience, and when you're touched by God, it's powerful. It 
it defies everything else. It wipes out everything else. You don't get a choice. You have to believe because you've just encountered God and something like that happened to him. And so he's been very sympathetic to the evangelical cause. I know you've been in meetings, and I've been in them too, where some evangelical skeptic would speak up and say, how do we know you're going to really, and he'll kind of wryly smile like, you watch, you watch. <laughs> so he has taken the lead, whether it's been appointments of judges or wherever it's been. He's done more than any other president has ever done for evangelical Christians by far. He moved the embassy to Jerusalem, which several presidents promised to do and didn't do. There are a lot of examples like that. In fact, I have a chapter in the book called Promises Made, Promises Kept. Uh, I mean, it's astounding when you start reading some of the things that have happened, and now COVID-19 and everything has kind of changed in our country. We're learning to live with new normals, wearing masks around and social distancing and all sorts of things, which I do go into the new book because the subtitle is How the Pandemic is Affecting Christians, the World, and America's 2020 Election. How do you think the pandemic will affect this election? Well, I wanted to ask you that question when you brought it up right now. What do you think? Of course, it's impacted the economy, but I read parts of your book. Can you review some of the ideas you had? (laughs) Yeah, of course. You're turning the tails on me. You know, it's things are so uncertain, and the left, and I don't even call them, you know, this is not really even Democrat-Republican, except at the polls, you know, it comes down to two candidates, one from each party, and it's not even liberals anymore. You know, liberals in our country mostly value free speech and those kinds of things. It's the left, it's anarchists, and I guess I'm mixing two different things, but it's like they can't get anything to stick on Donald Trump. They try everything, and the talking heads on the liberal channels, every day they'll say, well, Donald Trump has survived this last thing, but he's not going to survive this. I mean, I saw it with the Stormy Daniels episode that happened, when was it, two years ago, and I was on CNN and MSNBC three times in one week because, first of all, they wanted an evangelical to badmouth Donald Trump and say, you know what, we have stood with Donald Trump, but this is just a bridge too far. And they got the wrong one with me. They must have not done their research. But I said, every Christian, and I I know I'm not really answering your question, but I said, every Christian knows what it's to be forgiven. And every Christian has done at least one thing they do not want on the front page of the newspaper. So they can sort of forgive Donald Trump. And I said, it's not about that. It's about his policies. And I was able to go ahead and talk about it. And the reason I mentioned it is back then they thought, Surely Stormy Daniels will bring him down. And of course, the Mueller investigation is going to bring him down and the impeachment is going to bring him down. And then out of nowhere, this pandemic came along. And so now they're just, you know, it's almost become political. You know, the Democrats don't want the country to open up because then the economy is good. And of course, with the leftist governors and, and mayors, we've seen how quickly they have acted to really take away our rights where churches were considered non-essential. And churches are actually closed in some parts of the country. Here in Florida, where I live, things are pretty open. You know, they have, I think they're saying 50% occupancy, but, you know, we can still worship at 50% occupancy. And, you know, I'm just afraid that if the other side gets in, 
that we're going to see a lot more of this on a national scale instead of just in an isolated scale. And I ask the question, is the pandemic today, what are they going to use tomorrow to shut things down? So I think that the pandemic has just changed the paradigm and shown that any unusual thing that comes along, or maybe there'll be more pandemics in the future, and then this unrest that's happened, you know, this sad, sad case of George Floyd being killed, but it was like the left was waiting for something, and it's like it was a keg of gunpowder and somebody threw a match in it, and that was the match, and just things exploded. It's almost like the kind of unrest in the French Revolution, you know, probably not nearly as bad, but they did not fight the French Revolution for liberty like the Americans did. They just did it to get rid of the monarchy and kind of didn't care what happened. And I feel it's like that way with the left. So how is the pandemic going to affect the election? It's just one more thing. In some ways, it's bigger than the other things because the pandemic affected the average American much more than the Mueller investigation did. I mean, that affected Donald Trump and his administration and our government, but it didn't mean that you couldn't go out to a restaurant or you couldn't go to church or your schools were closed or, you know, all the things that have happened. And we don't really know where this is going to go. We still don't have a cure yet, although my podcast yesterday with this Nigerian doctor, Dr. Stella Emanuel, she believes that hydroxychloroquine is actually a cure for it. She says she has 500 patients. She gives it to them, and none of them have died. Boy, that's a message that they're trying to squash. But because Donald Trump mentioned it, there are all kinds of people that just hate it. And it's apparently a very safe medicine. They say it's as safe as Tylenol. It's been around for a long time. It's not very expensive. You know, it's just all this chaos, and the pandemic played into that in a big way. So that was not a very direct answer to your question, but those were the kinds of things I dealt with in the book. Mm. I liked your French Revolution analogy because I've seen that too. It, it's, I mean, it, Mark Twain said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And that's <laughs> the closest thing I've been able to find that illustrates the period we're in where there's such tremendous hatred of Christianity. And I can tell you, Steve, back in the Bush Senior White House, this is back in 1989, those years, even then, I told you how a Republican administration, a Republican presidency, and uh, people in personnel passed word to some of my friends in the White House that anybody whose application for a job had Gordon Cornwall Theological Seminary, their application would be thrown in the wastebasket. This was the anti-Christian sentiment in a conservative Republican White House, you can imagine what it is in a leftist Democrat White House. The point being that this anti-Christian bias runs really deep. It's cultural, it defies logic, and now it's being manifest on the streets. And as you say, churches being shut down. <laughs> It's fascinating. Yeah, and you go into a lot of this in that chapter that I described earlier where you gave me all these inside stories. In fact, I've told people it's almost worth the price of the book just to read that and to think about how long ago this went. And I remember you said that in some of the bureaus like the IRS, you know, there were very few evangelicals. 
you know, maybe it just kind of happened that way. If you look at the Supreme Court for a long time, they're either Jewish or they're Catholic. And it's, it's just kind of a mindset. Yeah, in fact, Scalia even publicly said someday there needs to be an evangelical on the Supreme Court. Yeah, think of that. I, I mentioned before to you, I think, to your audience, that back when I was there, out of 749 federal judges that were active at the time, because some of them were vacant, the positions were vacant, uh, only four, we could find only four who were born-again Christians. Now think of that for a minute, because you hear, I just was listening to NPR the other day, and they were talking about diversity, diversity. <laughs> it's just fascinating to me that they start with diversity by eliminating half the country, saying that if you support Donald Trump, you can't be a part of what they're wanting to do. But that's the beginning of diversity. But think of that for a minute. 38%, 39% of the country claim to be born again Christians, and only four federal judges out of 790 some federal judges as born again Christians. You get an idea of why Donald Trump is so extremely important for the survival of evangelical Christianity in these next few years. His impact will be felt, even if he does lose the next election, his impact will be felt for years to come. Partly because of the judges, of course, that he has appointed. And as we wrap up this podcast, and I want to do other podcasts with you, you know more stories than almost anyone that I know. And and we can deep dive into even some of the stories from your own book, which I encourage people to read inside Trump's White House. But as we wrap this up, what can individual people do, other than buy my book, of course, but people feel almost helpless. And I sense a real sense of apathy among Christians and especially pastors and you know, what are we going to do? We can't do anything. You know, these are big trends. You know, Pentecostals say, the de- you know, the devil's after us. And <laughs> sometimes we, it's almost like we think the devil's winning. And I'm being a little bit facetious. But how do you size all this up and what can individual people do? I want to mention again, the title of your book is God, Trump, and COVID-19. And it's a quick read, easy read, very... Well, you know, I'm torn by that, Steve, because you know what the scriptures say, and you know how they say that the time will come when almost even the elect would turn away. So uh, a part of me says, oh, this is horrible. There's never been anything like it. Another part of me says, yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And what did he say was going to happen? So we are experiencing, we we get a feel for it. If this isn't it, this is going to give us a good idea of what it will feel like, that generation that sees the message of God squashed and wiped out. Uh, You can get a little feel for the isolation and the humiliation. And when, when you first heard that, you encounter those scriptures that warn about that in the last days. Your instincts are not me, not me. <laughs> that's right. It's, I'll be tougher than ever. <laughs> yeah, of course, that's part of the human tendency to try to survive. And, you know, the Bible talks about beginning of sorrows, and I've heard some Christian teachers say that at the very least, this is the beginning of sorrows. But you being a historian, you know this a lot better than I do, that there have been some extremely difficult times 
in history. Certainly, World War II was one of them, our parents' generation. And the late 60s, which you and I both can remember, I mean, there were cities burning after the assassination of Martin Luther King. There were riots at the Democratic National Convention in 1968, drugs and free love and hippies and all that kind of stuff. But yet, then the Jesus movement came, and the charismatic movement in the Catholic Church came, and and there seemed to be a shift, you know, especially during the Reagan era. And as I've said many times, Donald Trump is not going to be in forever. You know, I believe that he's going to win a second term, although there's no certainty. But even then, he's out in 2025. And a lot of these issues are still going to be there, of course. But what happens in history and what happens in the end of time is way beyond what any of us could deal with. But don't we need to stand strong and to at least push back? Or can we be the little Dutch boy that put his finger in the dike and held it back at least for a while? Absolutely. And you've done that with this book. And the Lord opened the doors to give me a chance to do it with the book that I wrote. And the Trumps are doing that. You mentioned the moving of the embassy. I had the most wonderful interviews with Jared Kushner and said, how did you do that? I mean, six presidents said they were going to do that. They swore they would do it. George W. Bush was so upset at Clinton. He said, boy, I'm going to do it the first day, the first day I'm president. He, he got in and he never did it in eight years. So I asked President Trump, why did you do it? How did you do it? What did you encounter that what these other presidents, why didn't they do it? And Jared is the one that gave me the best story. The president answered, it's great. But Jared explained that as soon as his father went into the Oval Office, he was bombarded with calls, Emmanuel Macron, and don't change the embassy. And they came from all over the world, President Erdogan of Turkey. And the warning was, if you change that embassy, there will be a war in the Middle East and 100,000 people will die if you do it. And that was the warning. And Trump said, well, what is every president, all six presidents, they all had the same goal, peace in the Middle East and moving the embassy, those two things. And they never could get peace in the Middle East if they moved the embassy, so they put that off, trying to get peace. Well, I'm gonna do one of them. I'll move the embassy, and who knows? Maybe I'll get peace too. We'll see. So they moved the embassy, and there was no war. <laughs> a few rocks were thrown, and that was about it. And it is absolutely amazing. He he has great instincts. He seems to understand things. And as we wrap this up, you told me a story yesterday about the war in Afghanistan, and that is so good. I don't want to wait till another podcast. So. This will be foreshadowing of other podcasts with Doug Weed. In fact, I've done a few in the past. The last, the one you did with me on the impeachment was one of the biggest podcasts I ever had. So, uh, of course, I wanted to have you back. But why don't you tell me that story? Because I think it shows his leadership, but also his insight and the fact that he sees things that nobody else sees. Yeah, yeah, Steve. In the book Inside Trump's White House, I have all these stories of how he blows up NATO and then he rebuilds it and he blows up NAFTA and he rebuilds it. And his style of finding how American money is drained. Another great one is foreign aid, which goes to your neighbor, not to <laughs> it, it, it goes to pay for hospital managers to come to America 
from Egypt and other countries, and that's foreign aid, but they come to America and they work in America. They grade your papers at Harvard. That's their assistant professors. A lot of people don't know that. They don't go to starving children on the streets of Cairo. They go to well-heeled people, and they go back to Americans in many cases. So the Afghan story, what came to me after I wrote the book Inside the White House, I was contacted by someone who said, I read your book. I read all these stories. I got another one for you. They said that there was a meeting in the Oval Office and the president was just irate over the amount of money being spent on the Afghan war. And the Pentagon, they but the generals were there and they brought him in all these pages that he was going through line item by line item. And he sees this huge amount of money. So what is this? And they said, Mr. President, that's the Afghan army. We pay the salaries of every soldier in the Afghan army. And why do we do that? Well, they're our army because we pay for them. They train the way we want them to train. They go where we want them to go. They fight where we want them to fight. Would you rather have our young men die in the war in Afghanistan? This is our army, but it's our army because we pay for it. We pay their salaries. They work for us. But this is a huge amount of, well, Mr. President, this is 200,000 soldiers that were paying their salaries. And the president pauses and he says, what's their names? And the generals say, sir, pardon me, sir, what's the names of these soldiers? Oh, there's 200,000. Yeah, what's their names? Oh, okay, I get it, I get it. We should run an audit of who these people are, and we'll do that, Mr. President, we'll run an audit. And they hire a firm in Afghanistan, they run an audit, and on their first pass, they discover that 100,000 of those soldiers are ghost soldiers. They're like mafia jobs at a cement factory in New York City. They never show up. They just get paid a check. There was billions of dollars going down a rat hole, going to wealthy people and to corrupt people in America and in Afghanistan and in other allied countries that work with us and the United Nations on the first pass through, 100,000 of those soldiers never existed and they were getting that money. That's Donald Trump. He wants to do things right, but he's, as you said earlier, he's a businessman and he can spot a scam a mile away. <laughs> and he was apparently the only one who even thought to ask the question. Uh, all those people apparently in the Pentagon? So. Apparently so. And that was that was what happened with NATO. The media went crazy. You're destroying, this is our oldest alliance. You're destroying NATO. And he blew the whole thing up and rebuilt it. And now NATO have, provides an additional $90 billion that they pay the NATO nations that they were not paying. We were paying for high-speed railways in Germany and beautiful new freeways and airports all over Europe. The American middle-class taxpayers in little towns across America, that's where our taxes were going. That's why our education was falling apart. It was going to German education and French education, and the money was going to them because they didn't have to pay for their own defense. We paid their whole defense budget of every one of those countries. Our taxpayers paid it. And Trump had had enough of that. He said, it's time for you guys to at least pay what you promised you would pay. 
And that's another reason that we need to reelect him because he's a real leader, especially compared to his opponent, Joe Biden, who hides in his basement and can't even seem to put together a complete thought. And it's another reason why your book, it was so you, you get into this in your book on the corporations. Another reason, Steve, why those nations oppose him. It's why, but you know, you'll see CNN, they'll say, oh, Donald Trump, he's, he's, uh, they don't like him in Germany, they don't like him in Britain, they don't like him in France, they don't like him in China. He's not popular. Of course he's not popular. <laughs> he's making them pay for their own, their own bills. As, as he said to the king in Saudi Arabia, he said, hasn't anybody ever asked you to pay for this? We're giving you these missiles free of charge and you're paying nothing. Shouldn't you pay something? And he said, the king said, well, yes, well, well, yes. What should we pay? You mean nobody's ever asked you to pay for these missiles? No, (laughs) no one's ever asked me. (laughs) So the richest countries in the world were taking our money because we were giving it to them. But I think they respect Donald Trump. I really do. Yeah, I think that you're right about that. (laughs) And the media was going crazy over how they were making fun of him and all of this kind of stuff. And when you look at some of the pictures, they were all grouped around him, hanging on his every word, you know, as if he was the important one in the room, and, and he really was. So, you know, we could talk for a long time. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up, and thank you once again for taking time in a very, very busy week to fit in a podcast. And I appreciate you pushing God, Trump, and COVID-19. I've, I don't think I've ever had a guest push my book so hard, so I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed it. I, well, I'm I glad. really enjoyed the book. And I enjoyed yours. We can have a mutual admiration society. Of course, I've been a Doug Weed fan since the 1960s, so I appreciate the impact that you had on me. And for what it's worth, the day we're recording this, August 5th, 2020, is literally the 45th anniversary of the first day that Charisma Magazine came off press. Wow. And in those early days, you were a big encouragement to me when I felt like quitting a whole bunch of times. And then our lives kind of went in different directions for many years, but we maintained that friendship, and I appreciate it. And with that, I'll close, and thank you for listening to my podcast, God Trump and the 2020 Election, the podcast that makes the case for why Donald Trump must win and what's at stake for Christians if he loses. God bless you. I want to add something. I'm back in the studio and I wanted to just call attention to my two books. I'm not just trying to sell a book. I'm trying to get a the message out, and of course I put them in books, and I want to let you know that you can buy God, Trump, in the 2020 election, and also my new book, God, Trump, and COVID-19, How the Pandemic is Affecting Christians, the World, and America's 2020 Election. You can get them, of course, online. There are a couple of good online booksellers. Amazon.com, of course, is the best known, but also ChristianBooks.com sells it, as well as BarnesandNoble.com. But you can buy it on my own website, which is my name, stevestrangbooks.com. That's my name, Steve Strang, books in the plural. And on my site, we have some specials. You can buy them in bundles. Uh, You can get several copies at a discounted price. And also the copies that are on my website are autographed. Some people like that. 
Uh, You can also get it in many brick-and-mortar stores. Walmart and Sam's probably have the greatest number of copies and greatest number of stores around, but also Costco and some Christian bookstores. But wherever you get them, I hope that you'll read the book. I hope you're inspired by the book. That's really why I wrote it, was to inspire Christians to get involved because we can make a difference. So please read God Trump in the 2020 election and also God Trump and COVID-19. And if you like the book, share it with your friends. Loan them a copy, buy them a copy, and also go on some of these websites and leave a review to just kind of get the word out there about these books. Thank you for doing your part to help me to get the word out. God bless you.